Good morning. As Pastor Evan had alluded to earlier, we're starting a new three-week series this morning that I pray will reorient our focus on Christ's mission, which here at our church we make it easy because our mission is Christ's mission. We don't want to use the name of Jesus uh, for our mission apart from him. We don't want to usurp the name of Jesus and then get you to do what I want you to do or, or what our church wants you to do. We just want to do what Jesus wants to do. And we codify that in our church's own mission statement, which I'd love for you to help me with it. You know our church's mission statement? Compass Bible Church exists to reach people for Christ, teach people to be like Christ, and train people to serve Christ. So some of us are like, I get it. I know it. Others are like, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. We, we even tagline it on our podcast. We tagline at the end and we say, and everything we do here at Compass, including the podcast, including the exposition of God's word, including the gathering of the saints, the life groups that we do, and every single thing that we do at our church, it exists to reach, teach, and train. And so when you wonder why we do certain things at our church, it's because we want to reach, teach, and train. And likewise, if you wonder why we don't do certain things, it's because at this juncture in our church, we don't see it as the best avenue for us to reach people for Christ, teach people to be like Christ, and train people to serve Christ. And that mission, it defines everything that we do here as a church, which really comes from the Great Commission that we find in Matthew 28, which talks about our mission to reach people for Christ. Uh, but this morning, what I want us to, to think about is the particular word at the beginning of our mission statement, at least the first verb, uh, when it comes to our mission, that is reach. We, this morning, in our first se- sermon in this series, we're going to talk about reaching people for Christ. But what I want to do is I want to take it a little bit different way as you heard Pastor Evan read from Psalm 96 because I believe the best way for us to have a heart for reaching people for Christ is found in Psalm 96. So if you will, I want you to turn your Bible open with me there in Psalm 96. As you do, I'll throw our preaching point there up on the screen If you look at that text, here's the gist of it, that our call to reach the world for Christ is accomplished by imploring the nations to turn from idols and worship the living God who will judge the earth in justice and righteousness through Christ. Our call as the church that has been purchased by the blood of Christ is to go and to proclaim and implore the nations to turn from worthless idols and to turn to the living God. Right? There is only one God, there's only one name of a God that is actually living that can do anything good for the person eternally and even in our lives today. But yet we see people going after idols, after little g-gods that may give temporary pleasure but lead to ultimate despair. And really, you know what evangelism is? You know what reaching is? Tell them those things don't satisfy. God satisfies the soul. Right? Evangelism doesn't have to be you know, the few loud people in our church that go out and, and, and scream upon the rooftops. Well, that's part of it, right? It doesn't have to be just the extroverted people who go from door to door. It's really just every single person who says the joy and the pleasure we find in Christ is far greater than anything you can pursue in this world. And that, my friend, is evangelism. Telling people about the glory and the satisfaction that we find 
in God through Christ and will ultimately bear out in our ultimate joy that we're going to have with him for eternity. You see, that didn't sound dry, did it? Because evangelism, because reaching people for Christ isn't dry. And if it's dry, I'm going to say your heart doesn't reflect what we see here in Psalm 96. And that's why I have us there this morning. Because I want our hearts, I want our minds, and I want our hands to reflect what we see here in Psalm 96. So with that being said, I want you to go there. Psalm 96. Put your eyes there. In verse 1, as we think about what the psalmist is pointing our minds to when it comes to the word evangelism, which I guess before we go through verse number one, if you're new maybe to Christianity or maybe you're not and you've never asked the question, what is the word evangelism? Well, evangelism is always one of those hard words because it comes from, at least it comes from the Greek. I know this text is Hebrew, but we use the word evangelism coming from the Greek, uh, and it is the word euangelion, euangelion, which if you look at the spelling, it looks a lot like the word evangelism. And so the problem is it's hard to understand what the word evangelism means because it's not translated, it's transliterated. And so what's important for us is to understand the, the definition of evangelism is good news. Like good news. Like, I, boy, do I have some good news for you. I mean, when is the last time you had that attitude and we had that attitude about telling people about Jesus? You know, instead of, you know, going and say, well, here's, the, the, here's my, uh, the, my evangelism pamphlet. Uh, number one, God created the universe. Number, you get it, right? The dry, just, you know, we're going to go line by line by line. We have to understand the message is important, but the messenger is important. How we give the message. What about the messenger gives life to the message, right? I mean, you heard people tell you the truth, and sometimes you're like, I hear that, but I don't feel like you believe what you're saying. The messenger is important when it comes to the message. Now, we must understand that the message is far more important than the messenger, but the messenger must understand how important the message is, and their life ought to reflect and follow that. And so for us, I want to show you what the messenger looks like in the Psalms when it comes to the good news of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 1. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. I want to pay special close attention because this text brings us to the understanding that when we think about who is the psalmist talking to, we can go into the historical account, which you can find even in First Chronicles 16, as David is moving the ark of God, uh, you know, as the Philistines took it, and they put it in Shiloh, and then uh, they put it in uh, a Kiriath, what was, the, what was the last name of that second name, what was that? Jerem, they're at Kiriath-Jerem, and then they're moving it now to Jerusalem. And you see this in 1 Chronicles 16, and, and you see them praising the Lord. And you can see even parts of this psalm in 1 Chronicles 16 as a historical background for this. And really what they're doing is they're praising God for the good news of God's presence among the people. And so for us, we look at this text, and we're saying, yeah, but the psalmist is talking about God's presence there with the people in Jerusalem, but it's not supposed to stop there because here, although they're carrying this ark into Jerusalem, this is telling me in verse 1, sing to the Lord all the earth. What we're talking about is God's government here. And we have to understand that if you understand historical uh, background of the Old Testament, you understand what the ark meant and how God instituted a monarchy, particularly in the time of David, where he was the monarch, he was the, the head of the government of Israel that God had instituted. 
instituted. If you've been here long, you, you hear us call that a theocratic monarchy. Like it's a monarchy because there's a king, but it's a theocratic monarchy because the monarch rules subservient to the king of kings, and that's God. And so this whole psalm is actually introducing to us how we should think about and pronounce the coming government of God. Because you understand that as we look to the eschatological fulfillment of God's plan as he ushers in the new heavens and the new earth, we're still going to be under a government. So if you hate government, you aren't going to like eternity because the eternity is full of government. It's just full of the perfect government. God is going to govern. Christ is going to govern. As God hands over all authority to Christ, he's going to govern perfectly. And Psalm 96 is foretelling of this coming government. And our job is to say, the Lord reigns. This is his world. He's coming to redeem it. He's going to rule over it. And you need to get on the bus because there's judgment coming. There is The government is going to come judge, and it's going to make all the bad things good. It's going to make all the wrong things right. He's going to judge the evil, and he's going to take those who have been placed into Christ's righteousness, and he's going to come, and he's going to enlist them in his government, and they're going to reign with him. You see, that's, there's some gospel there. There's a gospel there, you understand. That's the result of the response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if we can't get that far out, we don't understand the gospel. The gospel teaches us, it's the good news, that not only does our lives not end here, we will go rule and we will reign in the government of God in Christ. So what are we going to do? It says right there, we're going to sing. We're going to sing. Say, what does singing have to do with evangelism, pastor? Everything. Because if evangelism is the message and we're the messengers, it matters how we package that message, isn't it? Like when people listen to you talk about Jesus, what do they think? They, I don't know if that guy believes what he's saying. I don't know if that church even knows what they're saying. Because they're saying there's this good news, but they're saying it like they've had the worst life they've ever ever. I mean, this, this text teaches us how we're out to package the gift of the gospel. It's a precious gift. We ought to exult. We ought to have just jubilation at the good news that's coming. I mean, we can look at the government right now, and instead of, Oh, you know, it's just really, really bad. You say, no, 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 this is what the Bible says. The Bible says it's going to go from bad to worse. The people are going to be lovers of self, lovers of money, insolent liars, haters, disobedience to parents. The scripture says that. But, but, this is why Jesus came, because he's going to come institute a perfect government. And that's the government we're looking forward to. I'm voting for King Jesus, and that's the person I'm going to follow. He's going to be in office for eternity. There's some good news. See, that gets you excited about something, and it's not that we're making up anything. The Bible tells us exactly that. But when we preach the gospel, are we singing about it? Do we have a heart for the gospel? Do we have a joy? The precious gift that we have in Christ delivers how we, it matters how we deliver the news. But it also matters, you know, how we gather and celebrate the news, which is a particular place I want to sit in for a minute when it comes to this congregation. I mean, can you imagine you're going out there and, you know, you're celebrating and you're singing the good news of Jesus Christ and you come in here and everyone's like, we're singing songs about King Jesus and we're sitting here you know, looking at the floor, looking around, looking at my coffee and, and we're just, hey, I can't wait for this song to be over. You can? You, why? Why is it that when we look at the psalm and it says, 
when we gather, because you do understand, even the context of this psalm, the nation of Israel were together. They were celebrating the government of God resting there symbolically, representatively through the ark being there in the midst of the people. And we're here as a people of God, and we have a problem singing about the good news of Jesus. Think about that. I've been, want, I've been wanting to preach on this for years, but I always make a promise that I won't preach to you anything that I don't see in the text. But here it is in the text. You know, as a pastor, it, it, nothing pains me more than watching people painfully make it through singing in worship. It, it, nothing pains me more than looking around and seeing people not even opening their mouths. It's like, do you know the good news of Jesus Christ? you got a lot of people here who know the good news of Jesus Christ. And if you see them singing, you better get on the bus because we're singing to the Lord. We're rejoicing in the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if that doesn't get you excited, this may not be the church for you. We want to get you on board, but we want you to sing the good news of Jesus Christ. One of the problems that we see when it comes to singing in our culture is uh, what you see out in the culture is much different than what the Bible talks about when it comes to singing here. Usually when you're out in the culture, you go to concerts and uh, you have the people singing to you. You you pay the money. You go sit in the you go sit in the auditorium and you say you sing to me, you sing to me. This is for me. But when you come into God's congregation, the people here that are privileged to come lead us, they look at you and say we're singing to Him. Right? You and me. When this song comes up, the, the words are on the screen. They're there for you to say things to Him. And they're there for you and me to say things to each other about him that affirm who he is to us. Do you see that? We're not an audience. We're a congregation. And we sing to the Lord. What does that have to do with evangelism? Everything. When we're in here, we're saying truths about the good news of Jesus Christ to one another. Evangelism isn't just for the unsaved. Evangelism is for the saved. It's the good news of Jesus Christ that you do not just respond to once, that you live every single day of your life. If you're one of those people, and I hope you aren't, do you think, I only need the good news once? You miss the gospel. The good news is, is the bread of life every single day, and we need the good news every day of our lives. And there should be an intrinsic joy for the Lord, a jubilation. And if, if you... If you wonder what happens if you don't do it, you just got to read verse 12. If you don't do it, the fields are going to do it. When, when God's government reigns to, in the days to come, the fields are going to exult. The trees are going to sing. And you're like, well, that just sounds very poetic. Well, let me draw your attention to Luke 19. Just jot that down. Luke 19, starting in verse 37 through 40. As Jesus was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. Now, they were publicly rejoicing. Did you see this? And here's what happened. They were saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus said, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And you hear that? Jesus says, if they don't, the very creation will cry out, my glory and my fame, and they will praise my name. I want you to think about that. You have more life in you than a stone. You have the very life, the breath of life 
in your body and you were created to sing the praises of God. You want to be a good evangelist? Point number one, you need to evangelize through the public exaltation of Christ. The public exaltation of Christ. I even love even that text in Luke. What are they doing? They're out there publicly exalting Christ. Exalting, right? To joyously, gleefully, jubilantly. I didn't even say that right. Jubilantly. There you go. Ecstatically. We're going we're to sing about Christ. We're going to do it in the congregation. We're going to do it out in the community. And it's just not going to be a private affair. It's a public affair. The good news of Jesus Christ is a public affair. Should you be doing it in private? Absolutely. But when we gather together, there should not be a louder room in New Braunfels, Texas, than this one right here. Not because we want to feel good about ourselves, but because we just want to sing about the truth of the good news of the gospel. I'm going to talk about public exaltation. Turn to 2 Corinthians 2 with me for a moment. 2 Corinthians 2. They are starting in verse 15. 2 Corinthians 2, 15. I want you to see this because it's scripture that testifies from beginning to end of the public nature of our faith and our declaration of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So starting there with me in verse 14. It says, But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him in our closets at 6 a.m. in the morning as we pray to the Lord. Is that what it says? It says, everywhere. Does that include your closet, your stinky closet? Yes, you need the fragrance of the Lord in that place. But you need it everywhere. We need it. God says it's going to go everywhere. As Christ triumphantly leads us in procession, we're going to make his name known everywhere. For, for why? There, there's, this, there's this means in which God pronounces his reign and rule. And again, you're talking about God's government here. And you're like, I don't really hear much about God's government in the Bible. Yes, you do. You don't see it. Look, right here. Literally, it just says it right there. Christ leads us in triumphal procession. What is that? That is what people did when they won a war. They would grab their army and they would, they would go through the cities pronouncing victory of war because we are the government. We are triumphant. In the same way, you want to be a part of God's government? You will be led in triumphal procession with Christ, spreading the good news everywhere as a fragrant aroma. And it says here, that we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. So if I were to think about a percentage of uh, the people of the world, if I add those who are being saved and those who are perishing, I get 100% of the people that are alive here today on earth. And so if I'm wondering what this aroma, who this aroma touches, it touches everybody. It goes everywhere. And it's for both purposes. And it's another thing, a misnomer about evangelism, is this idea that if I share the gospel with somebody and they reject it and don't respond, it failed. And it's just, that's just nowhere in Scripture. As a matter of fact, I can tell you in Scripture where it says the exact opposite. And it's right here. For the, we're the aroma of Christ among the saved and those who are perishing. And listen, here's the difference. The difference isn't success or fail. The difference is this. To one, we're a fragrance from death to death. You see that? When we share the gospel with those who reject it, 
were just a reminder for them of the judgment to come, which is a really, really, really good tool of God to continually remind people that this ain't all there is. There's judgment to come. There's a government coming who will rule and to reign and who will shut the mouths of the raging seas, Psalm 46, the nations that totter, the seas that are roaring, all of those things. There's coming a government that will shut the mouth of all of those leaders, of all of those peoples, all of those who wage war. God will come and he will put them to utter destruction. And that's that great verse we like. Be still and know that I'm God. Again, just God saying, you have no other choice. I have created complete desolation. There is only for you to be silent and to pay attention to me. It's God's government that's coming. And here, for one, we're a reminder to people, hey, God's government's coming. He's the king. But to the other, we're a fragrance from life to life to other people. Those who respond and those who are already saved, we're a message of life to life. We're that. We're the people who are encouraged when we hear of the coming reign of God in Christ. We're those who maybe have never heard it, who hear it on the first time, say, it's the first thing that's made sense to me. Like, this makes sense. This world's going to hell. And where am I going? Well, who am I following? We're a fragrance from life to life. We're the good news of the gospel to those who are being saved, and we should evangelize through public exaltation. We are being paraded around the world as Christians to proclaim the majesty and the coming government of God in Christ. And that's a lot more exciting than I think the way we often think about evangelism. You and I, we are being paraded around in triumphal procession. Like a lot of us think that oh, when we go out there, we're just going to get beat up by the world. It's like, are you kidding me? The war's over. We're not going out there to get beat up. We're going out there to, to tell them that we won. And we're just trying to get people on board because the, the war is over. The victory is in Christ. We're just telling people about it. But that's my big concern about even singing, right? I mean, I don't think you'd be very good at that. I wouldn't be very good at that if I can't even get with my brothers and sisters and raise my voice to the Lord. It'd be very difficult for me to go out there to a world who still thinks that God doesn't reign, who still thinks the war isn't over, who still thinks that they're going to get their cake and eat it too, and tell them boldly about the reign and rule of God if I can't even get with my own people and sing praises to the Lord. That's a big concern I have. I don't have a lot of proof, but I have an experience, and a church that won't sing to the Lord is not going to be a great church when it comes to evangelizing the lost out of these walls. If you want to exalt Christ in the congregation, you're not going to exalt Christ to the nations. And that means, it does mean, it means singing out loud. Guys, it does mean clapping after the songs. You're not, just, just let me give you this. When you clap, you're not clapping for these people up here. I promise you. And if they take, they won't take it that way. And if one of them ever does, you know, we'll just give them a nice reminder. All right, this isn't for you, Right. When you clap, you, sh you should clap every single time there's an opportunity to clap after a song, right? I mean, you could clap after an offering, if you know what I'm saying, all right? Clap after sermons. Any time that you see the word of God or the worship of God being proclaimed rightly, you should praise. You should have joy, Not, also knowing that you, it doesn't happen everywhere. And you sh there should be a reminder to every ear in this room, that what is happening here is good and right 
and wonderful. See, that's what praise does. And it goes up to God and it is a fragrant incense to the Lord. Maybe you're one of those guys, I don't sing. I just don't sing. I'm too manly. I'm just too manly to sing. And I'm like, have you read the Bible? I think of like King David. I don't think anybody sung more than King David. And he, and he slayed lions. And he led armies to war. He led a nation as the king. And he sang to the Lord. So until you're more manly than that, open your mouth on a Sunday morning. Amen? Hmm, come on. All right. All right, but listen, our exultation, right? If we're going to exult, if we're going to have joy, we're going to have jubilation, right? Jubilation and joy in and of itself is, is insanity, if you will. There's got to be something attached to it. It can't just be clapping and praising. What are you praising? What are you clapping for? I don't know. There's a problem with that. Your exultation ought to have a particular message attached to it. There's got to be something of substance attached to that jubilation if it's going to have any meaning. And that's what you really see. Starting in the second part of verse 2 on to verse 6, look at it with me. Bless his name, or praise, right? Praise his name. Tell, that's that word. I really, I really want you to highlight that word for the context of our own sermon this morning. Tell, the LXX, which is the, the uh, Septuagint, which is also known as the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the original Hebrew text, okay? Did you follow that? You need me to say it again? Is you good? All right. You good? Okay. And here's why that's important. Because the Septuagint, or the Greek translation of the Old Testament, was the Bible of Jesus' day. It was the Bible that the disciples were reading. And so it's important to know that in the Septuagint, or that Bible version that the disciples were reading, that, verse, that, that word there, tell, was the word evangelism. If you go to the Septuagint, and you look up verse 2... It will have the word good news. It'll have the word, you need to go tell, we're going we're gonna to praise the name of Jesus, and we're going to go tell the good news of what? Right there. Of his salvation from day to day. So if we say, I, Old Testament didn't talk about the good news of the gospel, it sure does right there. The good news, the gospel of the salvation of God. How God has delivered his people through history, culminating in the ultimate deliverance through Christ our King. And remember, we've been in Matthew. We're, st we're still thinking about this whole government idea. You remember the whole book of Matthew is pronouncing the coming government of Christ? Remember that? It was establishing his right as the Davidic heir to the throne, who will come, who will rule, on and, rule and reign for a thousand years in the millennial kingdom. It was all, the, the book of Matthew is all to show you just how Jesus Christ is the rightful king of the world. Not of just of the nation of Israel, but of the whole world. And here, we're going to tell of that salvation, that Christ has come to save us from our sins, that Christ has come to rule and to reign, and all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, Matthew 28. And the scribes last week, they understood it. They said, this man, he speaks with authority. He's speaking with some kind of authority that the scribes don't have. What's that authority? The government of God is in his hands. And we're going to go tell people about it. And what does that look like? It also looks like us, as we share the gospel, we're going to declare his glory. And that word glory means weight. You should write that down because I know in our, in our world, some words are hard to know the definition of. 
And I, you should put that on there because if you will, you know, people say, I want to glorify God. I want to give glory to God. Well, if you want to give glory to God, that means you need to give the proper weight to God, the proper weightiness of God. And we're going to get into that in a moment, but what we need to say, I want to declare his glory. I want to declare his weight among the nations. When people hear us talk about God, do they feel a weight attached to that? Is, is there a reverent weight attached where they say, we're not just talking about somebody down the street. Like, we're talking about someone I need to prepare for. If he's the king of kings and the lord of lords, if the government rests upon his shoulders and he's coming to rule and to reign, i got to think about him in a commensurate manner to what they're telling me. Because when I think about God, I don't think about him that way. I think about him as really just, you know, a little more dressed up Santa Claus, omniscient, awesome, pretty plump probably, rosy cheeks, right, gives me the things I want when I ask for them. And if that's your idea of God, this is not the glory that ought to be ascribed to God. We want to declare the proper weight. Who is God? We want to declare who he is. And in one way we can do that practically in our life is is the rest of verse 3. By declaring his marvelous works among all of the nations. It's the foundation of evangelism. That I'm declaring the works of God. And I'm telling everybody all the works of God. This is, where, this is where God and Santa Claus, even in our culture, start you know, feeling very, very separate. You know, it's, when you say, God went and took Israel out of Egypt and put the plagues on Egypt and went and he separated the Red Sea and took them right through there. You're like, Santa? Santa did that? You're like, no, Santa didn't do that. Never do anything like that. Talking about... God put the flight, the nations, empowered Samson to slay thousands of people with the jawbone of a donkey. Santa didn't do that. He couldn't do that. You see, when we start saying, what are the works of God? Who is God? What has he done? We start separating him from all the cultural attachments that they would put on to God. And you make him completely different because you're not making him anything different than who he really is. And so if your evangelism misses out on talking about the works of God, your evangelism has missed the mark. Because evangelism is meant to declare the good news of God in Christ. And that, that means, it demands that we talk about the works of God. And then it goes on, the psalmist goes on to declare some of these things himself. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, little g. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. And this, I love to just sit in this. And another thing that our English Bibles just don't do a great job of, if you mean if you look at verse 4, it's the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, which means Yahweh. Okay, we'll get better at that. It means Yahweh, right? It means Yahweh. So it's the personal name for God to Israel. And when we see, uh, when we see the little g God, that's, that's a different Hebrew word. Uh, uh, Elohim, right? Elohim, right? And you got other words for God. And so, if you had an actual, if you had an actual Hebrew Bible, uh, you would actually see that there are different names. He's not saying that there is God, God, and there's just God, right? We're saying no, no, no. They're complete distinct. They're, they're not even. They don't have the same name in the Hebrew. They're different. And he's saying about those little gods that they're worthless idols. And and then I want you to read that next phrase before we go back. But the Lord made the heavens. Okay, He's making a distinction there, a division between what people worship and who God really is. He said, these are gods that you have created. 
that entertain you, that give you some kind of therapeutic resolution to some problem in your life that ultimately amounts to nothing of very little value. If it gives you any pleasure, it's fleeting and temporary. And when you think about their foundation, if you think about their power, their potency, and you look at idols, and of course, you know, in that culture, we're talking about a lot of things and statues, figures, powers, right? The sun, maybe different kinds of figures you see in the world. In our culture, uh, we think we don't have idols, we have a lot of idols. You know, even uh, a, a book that we've uh, recommended has some questions in there for you. Hey, what are you willing to send for? Right? What, what are you willing to send for? That's an idol. What is that thing that you want so bad that you'd be willing to send for it? Another question is what are you willing to spend your money on and to sacrifice for? Right? What are you not willing to stop doing? What, what are you not willing to stop sinning for? If it's causing you to sin, are you willing to stop? Those things start giving you at least a categorical place to put this idea of idols. And idols in this life look a lot like entertainment, sports, and it's those things which right you look forward to, and it's that thing that gives you some kind of passionate attachment to that makes you feel a little bit better in life for some short period of time. And at the end of the day, whatever it is, dance, sports, music, whatever it is, you have to ask the question that the psalmist is begging here. What did those things ever do? Did they create the heavens and the earth? Did baseball set the sun? Did theater set the earth into motion? Did your significant other or the one you wish you had, did he... Set the foundations of the earth. Tell the waters to stop right there. Did they do that? They didn't do that. And this is exactly what the psalmist is getting us to look at in the sense of looking at them as God. They're worthless. But God, the Lord, Yahweh, made the heavens. It's bringing us to attention of saying, uh-oh, talking about that weight. Like, Wait a minute, no one else has done that. No one else has done that. I mean, it's, it's really what's thrown our society into an absolute confusion with the idea of a big bang, right? Because they're having to trace back to the singularity in time. And they're like, and we're saying, okay, well, who made the heavens and the earth? And they're like, this thing. You're like, well, I can't worship that. And they're like, exactly. You worship whatever you want to worship. Right? And there they say, you know, I watch, we, my wife and I watched the first five minutes of a documentary about how the universe began until we turned it off and threw our shoe into the TV. I'm just kidding, we didn't do that. Uh, and it was like, this is your great, 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 great ancestor. And his name was Luca. <laughs> his name is Luca. And he was a single cell organism, Luca. And I'm saying, how could I ever worship a God? And how the world going to worship a God when they say, I came from Luca? I mean, Luca was ugly. <laughs> and Luca couldn't do nothing. And somehow Luca created all of this. And people wonder, ah, this God, I don't, this God doesn't make any sense. Because they say I come from, Morgan Freeman told me I come from Luca. And that doesn't seem like what the Bible's teaching me. And I say, you need to turn Morgan off and turn the Bible on. And read the first line in the Bible that answers the question that people have been asking for years. And it's like, I love it because our God is so kind that he goes right into the beginning. He's like, I know what they're going to ask. The minute they start thinking 
They're going to ask this question, how did this all get here? And he's like, I'm going to make it real easy for them. Number one, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, period. He's like, they, they're gonna, they're like, they ain't going to miss that. And we missed it. We missed it. And all I'm saying is we want to tell people who God really is because people don't know who God is. And if my gospel misses who God is, the maker of the heavens and earth, people need to know why their gods are worthless. Because God made the heavens and the earth. And splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. All these things we want. We want splendor. We want to see majesty. We want to see real strength. We want to see beauty. And they're all in the presence of God. And people are trying to find it in God's creation. And they can't because it's fleeting. People are trying to find you know, all of these lenses that get us as far out to the universe as possible so they can find more. And we're just praying that as they keep looking and keep looking, it's just going to declare the majesty and the glory of God. And the heavens are going to pour forth speech declaring the majesty of God. And as God is doing that in creation out there, he's calling his people to do it right here. And so therefore, we're going to be evangelists. And we're going to do it through point number two. Evangelize through proclaiming the works of God evangelize through proclaiming the works of God. First Thessalonians 1, 8 through 10. I don't want to draw your attention to the whole thing, but you can jot it down. I can show you. As Paul is writing to the church in Thessalonia, he's telling them, like we've heard, actually everybody's heard, that they report among us the kind of reception we had, our message had to you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Did you see how Paul did the same thing the psalmist did? The living and true God. You turned from these worthless things that can never satisfy ultimately, and you turned to God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Even that idea of judgment to come, the government of God that's coming. And if God is going to raise up his government, he's got to demolish the old government. Right? And so many of you want to do that right now. And it's just, that is just not, the Bible's going to do, God said, I'm going to do that. So right now, you need to be an evangelist for the government to come. All right? You need to sign up for the, for the God party of Whenever that's going to happen. I'm not one of those pastors either that tell you when that's going to happen. I don't know. But we have a God whose son raised from the dead who's delivering us from the wrath to come. So you got to ask, how am I declaring the works of God? Right? Well, I do think you need to learn the Old Testament, learn the New Testament, learn the works of God, learn how God has worked through different time periods throughout history and tell people about that. But something you do really personally is tell people, how has God transformed you since salvation. I think that's, that is really important for people to see. It's really important for people to look at your life. We do it at our baptisms all the time. All right, we, tell, we tell our people who get baptized, hey, we need to tell, tell them a little bit about you know, how, how you knew you were a sinner. I don't need to know about all the sin in your life because we all look around and know we're all sinners. Tell them a little bit about how you knew you needed Christ. Talk about that moment of conversion. When did you know? When did you, when did you turn from your sins, place your trust in the Christ, and spend the rest of that time talking about the works of God? How has God transformed you, your life, your marriage, your desires, your affections? You can go around this room now and ask people, tell me about the works of God in your life. And there are stories in this room that will knock your socks off. I know because I've, I've been, you've shared them with me. And we talk about 
the potency of evangelism, you tell people how God transformed your life, they're going to listen because they're going to say, baseball didn't do that for me. Football didn't do that for me. So what am I missing? You're missing the work of God in your life. Come on, church. And that work of God, which is our job uh, to tell the nations, is is to move them towards a proper, an appropriate response to God. Look at verses 7 through 9 in our main text. Look at that. Psalm 96, verse 7. It says, To ascribe... To the Lord. We don't really use that word a lot, and so uh, it also be rendered. Ascribe means to credit or attribute or assign. Okay, you need to assign some things to God. They're His, and you need to give them to Him. So we're going to assign to the Lord, O families of the people, another term. Like, we're not just talking about the Christians here. We're not just talking about Israel here. We're talking about to the peoples, the nations is what that term, uh, what that term signifies. I'm going to tell to the nations, you need to assign some things to God. And one of those things you need to assign to him is the weight and strength that is his, the glory. You need, to, you need to look at God, who he truly is, and he's too heavy for you to comprehend. He's too heavy for you to carry around. And if your idol is under your arm, that's not God. He's too weighty for that. You need to ascribe. You need to accredit to him what is due him, and that is his weight and his strength. You need to ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. And then it starts getting, I love this, to some practical things. right? If God is who he says he is, and I'm going to worship God, there's some things that are going to happen. I'm going to bring an offering. I'm going to say, if you're God, you have everything that I have. Everything I have is yours. And I'm going to come into his courts. Right? Courts, we're talking here particularly uh, in the context of, of a temple period or at least in the tabernacle time period. But even that, that image is saying that there's something about me that I need to, to start applying in my life about my things, about my time, about my resources. And I need to say, if God is who he says he is, I need to ascribe to him me and my things and my time and my heart because it's his. And I'm a steward and I'm going to worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. So even how am I going to approach the Lord? In holiness. i got to be holy. That's a problem outside of Christ, isn't it? I need the imputation of the holiness of Christ in me to approach God properly. I need to respond to the gospel. I need to understand Christ, his personhood, his work on my behalf. And I need to turn from my sins. I need to place my trust into Christ. I'm going to tell the nations this. You want to come and you want to worship the Lord, you got to come to him in holiness, and you are not holy. You cannot be holy apart from Christ. And you're going to turn from your sins. You're going to to turn over your sin and your life to Christ, and he's going to clothe you in his righteousness, and you can approach God. And what is, in what way? Look at the text. Trembling before him. Trembling before him. And people don't think about that. People, I don't want to tremble before God. That's just not the kind of God I want to, I want to come to. Then you do not want to come to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If you do not want to tremble before the Lord in eternity, you do not want to, tr- you do not want to live with God. Because the weight of the God that I know is so heavy that your knees are going to shake. You're going to fall to your knees, and you're going you're gonna to glory in the presence of God, just like you see from those few people throughout 
Scripture that saw even the glimpse of the glory of God, and the first thing they did is drop to their knees. If your God does not do that to you, then you do not know the God of the Bible because he is a God whom we should fear. Is it a God we should fear because of his wrath? Not if you're a Christian. But it's a God you should revere because of his weight. You understand that? It's his weight that we should fear. And when it comes to our evangelism, we need to understand that lost souls are never going to understand the significance of the love of God until they rightly understand the fear of God. So point number three, you need to evangelize through proper reverence toward God. You need to evangelize through proper reverence toward God. It's exactly what the writer of Hebrews was saying in Hebrews 12, in verse 28 and 29. The writer says, we need to be grateful that we receive this kingdom. There it is again, the government of God, that we're receiving the kingdom, the government of God, and it cannot be shaken. And therefore, I mean, there's a response then. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Did you see that? There's a way, even those of us who are then called God's children and friends of God, that we still must approach God here in reverence and awe. Why? Verse 29. For our God is a consuming fire. Did you see that? Our God is a consuming fire. I thought he was my father. He is, but he's on fire. And you better be careful how you approach your father. C.S. Lewis, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, he wrote in his book, An Exchange Between Susan and Mr. Beaver, and it goes like this. Aslan is a lion. The lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Isn't that the problem? In our world, when people think about God, oh, I thought he was a man. He's not a man. And she asked, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. And he's the king. You see, the problem with us is we, don't, we have more reverence towards a lion in a book than we do the lion of Judah, who is and was and will be. And when we think about God, he can be a consuming fire. He can be a lion. He can be fierce. And he can be all the things that Scripture says. And we can still say, but he's good. And you should still not approach him as anything less than being a consuming fire and a lion who's going to devour the nations and install his government. You see, we can look at God reverently and appropriately. Finally, our evangelism should always point to the reign of God as king. It always, our evangelism should always be pointing about what's to come every time. We need to tell people that there's more than just your personal salvation at stake. There is the redemption of the world. We see that in verse 10 of our main text. Say, and there's, there's our command there, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. If you get nothing right in your evangelism, which, I, which you have to, you got to get the gospel message right. But if, you, if you're like, what, what am I missing? What do I need to put in? Right here. Here's what you do. You tell people, the Lord reigns. His government is coming and the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established and it should never be moved. You remember I talked about Psalm 46 earlier and last week, this Psalm is meant to be put into contrast with this psalm. The nations, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter, all of this chaos going on. But here it says, when 
the Lord reigns and establishes his government, the world will be established. It shall never be moved. And he will judge the people with equity. That's a great word. Equity, fairness, justness. He's going to give the right measure in every circumstance. And what's the response? Verse 11, let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the seas roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the people in his faithfulness. You see how much the end matters? The end matters in evangelism because this is the eternal kingdom to come. That God is going to, at the end of the millennial reign, when the world rages, God will put a a final nail in the coffin. The war will be over, that final war in God's eschatological timeline, and he is then going to send the unrighteous to the lake of fire. And he's going to remain here on the earth, the renewed earth established with his people, and it shall not be moved. there's there's, There's the good news that it doesn't end here. It is going to begin again here. And we need to evangelize. Last point, number four. We need to evangelize by telling of the judgment and joy to come. It's both. right? Don't do people a disservice of just telling about all the good things that are coming. Because the good things are only coming to those who are going to be found in Christ. The best thing that we can do is tell them of the gloom and the destruction that's coming. And to those who would turn from their sin, to whom that judgment and wrath is coming for, and turn to Christ, they will find the joy of an established government of God that will reach from everlasting to everlasting. And so if we're going to reach people for Christ, it should never be a dry exchange of facts. It should be a Christ-exalting, passionate plea of the kingdom to come. Let's pray. God, I pray now. I just pray that there's a renewed vigor for reaching people for the gospel I pray that our church doesn't just see evangelism as some task for the, for the 2%, but really, even as we see in Corinthians about this fact that we're all being led in triumphal procession, proclaiming the victory of Christ as a fragrance among the nations. And I pray for us that we not only internalize that. I'm, this isn't a self-help sermon. This isn't, a, this isn't one of those cool books on the shelf. It, it is the life of those who serve under the government of God, your government. So I pray, God, as we see the truth of your word, that it would come to life in our hearts, that you would open our eyes and ears to not only hear your word, but but live it out, that we too would have this zeal uh, to sing your praises. Even as we're about to sing right now, I just pray that our, our hearts and our mouths would sing praise, would sing your name, sing of the good news of the salvation that both is in Christ and is to come. In all these things we pray in Christ's name. Amen.